Our guest today has an extensive resume. He has completed the Iditarod sled dog race, completed several expeditions with her dog team, including multiple North Pole trips, a trip across the Arctic, and she has completed the Appalachian Trail. Please welcome to the show, Pam Flowers. Hi, Pam, and welcome to the show. Thank you. With this being the 50th anniversary of the Diderot, we are going to start the show off with a little Diderot trivia. We have five questions for you. Are you ready? Oh, I didn't know it was going to be a test. Okay. <laughs> First question. Who founded Iditarod? Um, Joe Reddington and Dorothy Page. Good. Second question. Who won the very first Iditarod? Um... I know who it was, I just can't remember his name right now. He passed away about a year ago, but I, I, I just can't remember his name right now. Dick Wilmer. That's it, that's it, that's it, yeah. The third question. Who was the first female Iditarod champion? Uh, that would be Libby Riddle. Right. Fourth question. <laughs> what was the closest finish? Um, that would be between uh, Rick Swenson and Dick Mackey. They were uh, within, I think, one second. Mm -hmm. Fifth question. Who was the oldest person to ever finish the Iditarod? The oldest person might be Jim Lanier. Norman Vaughn was 84. Oh, 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 yeah. How can I forget Norman Vaughn? Yeah. You're right, Norman Vaughn. J.C.C. Kent. Could you please report to the office? J.C.C. Kent. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. Uh, I was born in Michigan and then uh, moved to Texas and got, uh, that's where I got my degree to become a respiratory therapist. And then uh, from there, I had bounced around a little bit working in hospitals. Then I moved to Alaska. In 1981, I moved to Alaska because I wanted to be a dog musher, and I didn't even know there was an Iditarod until I heard the broadcast on the radio, and I got all excited about that, so um, I decided to prepare for that, and so I entered the 1982 Iditarod, and, and I finished it. Um, so uh, since then, I've not entered any more I did arise, I've done a long distance expedition after that. In our introduction, we have mentioned that you have quite the extensive resume. Let's start off at the beginning. What got you into mushing? Um, when I was, uh, um, two things influenced me. When I was a little girl, there was a radio program um, about this guy, um, Sergeant Preston and his dog came, and he was a um, sort of a policeman, what's called an RCMP in uh, Yukon. He used to, um, you know, he was a fictional character, but on the radio they portrayed him and his dog team running around the Yukon capturing all the bad guys, and that really fired my imagination. And then, um, of course, you know, I thought as, as a kid I was going to have my own dog team and run around and catch bad guys, but, you know, mm -hmm. life kind of got in the way, and then later on, it wasn't until 
And it was kind of funny, you know, people who are really competitive, who really have a good chance of winning, they always try and shave the rules a little bit. It just says no shoes. So a lot of people went to the um, gift shop and bought these little tiny no shoes. And, and that was, they were meeting the qualifications. Uh, but later on, they changed that rule. You had to have actually usable snow shoes that would support a human being, not some uh, six-inch thing that you put on the wall. And um, a certain amount of food per dog and a certain amount of food per person. And then we also had to carry um, some promotional mail, which was just a bunch of envelopes that had been uh, postmarked in Anchorage, and then they get postmarked in know when you finish the race. Well, I knew with 11 dogs and being a novice, you know, I wasn't going to be competitive. I didn't have any illusions about that. And I found out that the race actually broke down into three different kinds of mushrooms. There were the mushrooms who were, who thought they were good and they were good and really competitive teams. There's the middle third who think they're good, but they're kind of delusional. They're really not, don't have uh, competitive teams. And then there was the third group. And that's the people who know they don't have really competitive teams. They're just out there just to do it, just to be on this historic trail, be part of this great race that's known all over the country, all over the world now. And that's where I fit in. So I, I was in that third group. And that was so good because, actually, I met Norman Vaughn. I was just going through out uh, past Tacotna. I believe it was past Tacotna. Um, and he came up out of this draw and back up onto the trail. And he had been taking a break down there. And that's when I met him. And we had a really good time together. We traveled together a lot. And I, I knew that he had been to the Antarctic with Admiral Byrd. And it turns out when you're out there, Norman Vaughn loved coffee, but he didn't like to set up his stove. And I learned if I would set up my stove and make him coffee, he would regale me with all these great stories about the Antarctic and he had been over in Greenland rescuing people during the Second World War. And I, you know, I learned um, a lot of history from Norman Vaughn, and we became friends as a result of that. Um, and then, you know, in every, uh, almost every checkpoint um, past Rhone, you're, you're at a, in a little community. And back then, people would uh, take you into their homes, and you could have a bed to sleep in, and, and they would feed you. Now they don't allow that. Now everybody has to stay in the schools and make him. Um, so it was a pretty mild year. It never got really cold that year. We had really good snow, really good trails. And uh, I just you know, just kept going, waiting for something really, really bad to happen. But it was a great year. I mean, I just met so many people that were, that just loved dogs. And that, that third group of people like me, who just wanted to be out there, and who knew they didn't have any chance of winning, a lot of those people really knew a lot about dog mushing. And once they found out 
that you were not just trying to uh, fake them out, you know, and act like you're not competitive, but you really are, and you just want to slow them down by talking a lot. Once they found out that you really didn't want to learn, oh my goodness, they would just teach me all kinds of things about dog mushing. And I just learned so much about it, and I, I was really proud of the fact that uh, it was noticed how well I cared for my dogs because I got nominated for the Humanitarian Award. I mean, novice rookie mushers never get nominated for that. But I, I didn't get the award, but, but I did get the, nominated for the Humanitarian Award on that race. And that's the race that uh, is given to the musher who is recognized as taking the best care of their dogs. So that was my, I think, my proudest moment. And, and that was when I was in Shaktulik. That announcement came over the radio. Um, and then you just keep going, you know, from village to village. And kids are out there all the time running around, you know, asking you lots of questions about the dogs, want to pet the dogs. And it's, a, it's a very joyful experience, very upbeat. And then when I got into Nome, um, they, they do an interview with you on, on the radio and congratulate you. And they take your dogs down to this parking lot and they spread out a bunch of straw and take the harnesses off and, and uh, take care of your dogs for you. So um, I was number, let's see, I think there were 64 or 60, let's see, I can add this up, I'll tell you. Yeah, there were 68 mushers who started the race. 54 of them finished, and I was number 51 out of 54 people. So um, I, I was glad to finish because it was a year that, for some reason, an awful lot of people were scratched, and I never did understand that. But I'm, I'm glad I did it, and I'm glad you're studying about it because it really is um, it's quite the thing, and it's got a lot of history and a lot of really good, a lot of really good things happen. A lot has changed in the Iditarod since 1983. Would you rather have raced in the Iditarod in 1983 or today? Oh, in 1983, yeah. Um, it's, this isn't a criticism, it's just the evolution of the race. That back then, um, as I mentioned, that last third uh, category of mushrooms, uh, we're just out there to enjoy themselves, and it didn't matter when you finished, as long as you finished. Now, um, it's become so so much of a race, and there's so much money involved, and it takes so much money to do it. I, I could never afford to do it now. And there's a time limit, and I, I don't remember exactly what it is, but from the time the winner crosses the finish line, everyone else has only a certain number of days across the finish line other disqualified. And that, when they made that rule, that really bothered me. Um, it's just, to me, it's lost some of the whole tiny spirit. So, you know, I wouldn't have been able to come up with the money. I wouldn't have probably even qualified. Um, I wouldn't have disqualified because I wouldn't have finished that time. So, yeah, 1983. Yeah, I would do it again in 1983, but not now. 
after the Iditarod, he started getting into big expedition trips. What inspired you to do the expeditions? Um, well, expeditioning was actually my ambition from the very beginning. Uh, the only reason I did the Iditarod was really um, just to be a part of it and also to get experience on long-distance mushing. But what really inspired me um, to do long-distance mushing was that magazine article that I read that I talked about in the very beginning here when Naomi Yamura, who was a Japanese man, dog mushed to the North Pole. And he had also dog mushed across the Arctic. And so he inspired me. And, uh, and so I, I did dog mush across the Arctic. Uh, that was my, my big ambition, and, and I achieved it. So it was actually uh, a Japanese man named Naomi Yamura who inspired me. He didn't move multiple trips to the North Pole. Share with us and the listeners, what is it like to travel to the North Pole by dog team? Um, to, to get there, I actually went uh, to the Magnetic North Pole uh, three different times. Uh, one time I went with a dog team, uh, you know, a full dog team. I think I had 11 dogs. And another time I walked there with three dogs pulling the sled while I walked. And then another time, I drove a, um, a snow machine there. And in Alaska, we call snowmobile snow machine. So I've been there three different times. Uh, and each time was really a unique experience because the entire time that you're out there, um, it's, you're on ice. You're never on land. You're on ice all the time. And so, of course, every year the ice is different. But it's very challenging because you have to pay attention to the ice because some of it's very thin and you can, you can go through. And you have to pay attention to where um, rivers that come out onto the ice, even though they're frozen, there's still movement underneath there. And so you stay away from entrances to rivers because <coughs> that ice can be um, very thin. And you learn to tell the thickness of ice by observing the color. So the darker the ice, the thinner it is. Because the water underneath is causing the ice to look dark. So you stay away from dark ice. You stay away from places where the ice dips down. Um, and you look for uh, flat ice that is at white. And it's very stormy. And so it really, you have to pay a lot of attention to the weather because there's no way to get a forecast. And I learned, uh, this was kind of interesting, I learned if you look at the horizon and the sky is turning gray and you know there's a storm coming because the sky is getting very dark gray, but if you look at the horizon and it's still blue sky on the horizon, you still have about an hour before you have to set up camp so you can keep traveling. But once the clouds go all the way to the horizon, there's no more blue sky showing, the storm is going to be on you in a few minutes. So um, I always pay attention to that because you really, really need to get set up before the storm comes. And you know, people will tell you, oh, out there, the weather changes in a minute. No, it doesn't. You have, you have warning of what's coming. The weather doesn't change in a minute. 
you know, whether it's a matter of physics. And um, so, but it was really just this great experience every time because there's nobody out there. Absolutely nobody. It's just you and your dogs. And so you have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of the dogs. And it's just a bond that forms with them. And it, it's like, it, it's, you know, a famous musher, Susan Busher, said, I think dogs learn to read your mind. And I used to think, I used to wonder about that because when I went to the North Pole, to the Magnetic North Pole with the three dog team where I was walking and uh, they were pulling the sled and I would think, okay, we're going to take a break now, but I'm going to walk a hundred paces and I would do everything I could to not change how I was walking, not how I was breathing. I would just count in my mind. And I'd get up 98, 99, 100. And if I didn't stop at 100, by the time I got to 105, my dogs would stop and turn around and look at me like, what are you doing? You said we were going to stop after 100 paces. I don't know how they could do that. But you get so close to your dogs, and they can read something about me. I don't know. I don't know that they can read your mind. But they can tell something. And that's how close you get to your dogs. That when you're doing everything you can not to change anything about what you're breathing, walking, and you're counting in your mind, and they know when you just passed 100. I mean, what is that all about? Um, but it is so beautiful. Oh, you go through these islands, and it, it looks like Scrimshaw because there's not a lot of snow in the Arctic, and, you know, the, the outcroppings of rock are dark against this white snow, and it just looks like Scrimshaw all around you. And uh, we did um, meet a polar bear once on the first journey when I had a full dog team. And that polar bear came right into camp. And that was the only time that I ever did an expedition with another person. Uh, a friend of mine, Kate Persons, who was also an Iditarod musher. Uh, and we had just set up our camp and had not yet unharnessed the dogs. We were inside the tent. We were just getting ready to light our Coleman stove. When all of a sudden, the dogs burst into this uproar. And I stuck my head out to see what was going on because there's nothing out there and so the only thing it could be is a bear or a fox and I stuck my head out the front of the tent I was on my hands and knees looking out and I saw the dogs were looking towards the back of the tent and I peered around the side of the tent and a polar bear walked right past me but fortunately when I stuck my head around its head because it was moving very fast, its head was already past my head, and my head actually grazed its fur as it walked by. Oh, I sat back and I said to Kate, it's a polar bear, what do we do? Well, you have to carry weapons with you up there um, for defense, and we each had a 12-gauge shotgun loaded with slugs, and that is the uh, defense weapon for bears. And so we got out, and the bear 
the dogs are all up, you know, barking, and uh, they're still tied to the lines. And the dogs are barking and barking and barking, and they're just hysterical because, you know, the bear is towering way over them. And the bear walks up to Kate's lead dog and touches noses with them, the way dogs touch each other's noses when they're kind of sniffing. When that happened, all 22 dogs, we each had an 11-dog team, all 22 dogs instantly stopped barking and lay down, curled up like they were asleep. I have a picture of that. Carter Schultz, please report to Mrs. Stetswad, Carter Schultz. Okay, uh, and then um, I was, uh, so now we're both outside and we're looking at this bear going along, checking out all my dogs, and it came to my dog, Hank. And Hank was a dog, a wheel dog, right in front of the sled. And Hank sat up. He didn't stand up, he just sat up, and he looked at this bear, and he's like, mm -hmm. And the bear her mouth and put it on the back of Logan's neck. Thank you. And didn't bite him, but just felt down his back like she was trying to figure out, what is this thing? This was a very young bear, probably just been kicked out by its mom on its own for the first time. Certainly had never seen a dog. And poor Hank is just growling. But he just sat there like a little statue. And then the bear just left him alone. It went to my sled, <coughs> a 70-pound bag of ground chicken, and that bear lifted it out with her teeth, like you and I would lift up something that weighed five pounds. I was just in awe of the power that bear had. Well, it had never eaten chicken, so it apparently didn't see this as food. And the next thing the bear did, and I am not making this up, and I would never tell this story if I didn't have Kate there as a witness that I'm telling the truth. The bear then went behind my sled, stood where I normally stand, stood on her hind legs, put her front paws on the sled handle, and shook it. And all the dogs jumped up like they thought they were going somewhere. <laughs> and then... Um, she couldn't keep her balance. She was only on there like, I don't know, three seconds, and then she fell back down. And she did um, completely destroy our tent. And so um, we, after she left, we sewed our tent back together with dental floss and were able to finish the journey. But what she stayed in camp uh, for two hours, going around investigating everything, Kate and I were talking the whole time about whether or not we should shoot her because we would have been within our rights to. We set limits. We said she could not destroy our radio because we had a radio that we could call back and get rescued if someone was hurt. So she couldn't destroy that and she couldn't destroy our parkas because we needed them for our own survival. And she could not hurt a dog. But she never did any of those things. And so at the end of two hours, she just walked away, 
and there were these pinnacles of ice that were probably about eight feet, ten feet high. She would walk over to one of those pinnacles, stand on her hind legs, put her front paws up on top, lift herself up, and wallow on top of them on her belly and slide down the other side. And she just kept doing that off and just finally walked away and we never saw her again. So we were very glad that uh, we decided those rules so that we didn't have to uh, you know, dispatch her because she was just a young animal out exploring her world. And uh, she was just this beautiful white that young polar bears are. So that was my um, one of several polar bear encounters, but the most unusual polar bear encounter. So we did make it to the magnetic north pole. And then uh, you call for a plane, and a plane comes and lands on skis on the ice. And we all packed in and went back home and ultimately got home. And that was the end of that. Do you have a favorite expedition or experience? Um, a favorite expedition would have been when I dog sledded uh, 2,500 miles alone with an eight dog team from Barrow, Alaska, uh, 2,500 miles to the east side of Canada. That was my favorite. That was an 11 month journey. You eventually started writing books about your experiences. Did you keep journals during your experiences to help you write your books? Uh, yes, I did. On every journey, um, excuse me, I have to clear my throat. Um, yes, um, I kept journals all the time, and um, you know, different people journal at different times. I always chose to do mine in the evening when everything was fresh in my mind, and I always wrote the date, the um, temperature that was that morning, and the latitude and longitude for our position. And I noted anything about uh, the wind so and, and sky cover, so anything about the weather. And then after that, um, I would write down anything of interest that happened during the day. And if it hadn't been for the journals, uh, I would never be able to write anything because, you know, you get home and you go back and read them and you uh, realize, oh, yeah, wow, that's right, that happened and this happened. And, you know, you forgot all kinds of stuff, or your memory is wrong. You remembered it completely different from what actually happened. So journaling is, is really critical on something like that. What was the first Tyler book Tyler John, you wrote? if you're in the middle school, could you please report to the office? Tyler John. Repeat that. What was the first book you wrote? Oh, okay. Um, the first book I wrote was um, Alone Across the Arctic, and that was um, about the dog sled journey across the Arctic from Barrow, 2,500 miles to the east side of Canada. Our final segment of the show is a segment we are bringing back from our first season. It is called Mushroom Mount Rushmore. If you had to replace the four presidents on Mount Rushmore with, the four, with four faces of the Iditarod, who would they be? You can pick anyone that has anything to do with the Iditarod. Oh, okay. What a unique idea. Um, certainly Joe Reddington and Dorothy Page, who were co-founders of the race. Norman Vaughn. And um, I think Rick Flint. Okay. Uh, 
Thank you for talking with us today. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for being interested, in my dog, to me. And I hope you got something out of this, and uh, I hope you continue to study, you know, in rod. And um, I guess uh, I would just say thanks, thanks very much, and I hope you all stay in school, study hard, and get a good education, and just keep being interested in, uh, in lots and lots of stuff. Okay, take care, and stay healthy. Special thank thanks to Pam Flores for being on the artist with today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or people you would like to hear on our show, please email us at huskytalk1 at gmail.com. If we hear from you or you leave a review, we will leave it on the show. We would like to also give credit to Momo Jim for our intro song. We added our outro song and our outro song, Reddit Street To me, it's Reddington's run. In my heart, it's Reddington.